If you get a chance, you should look up the story of William Cooper, who wrote that, the lyrics to that hymn. Um, he was friends with John Newton. John, John Newton was his pastor. William Cooper, um, I guess today we would say that he suffered from depression, uh, even was institutionalized more than once, tried, uh, tried to commit suicide a couple of times. Um, and yet, Christ held fast to him. So, anyway, you should look up his story at some point. If you, uh, maybe I'll tell you his story someday. The 1689 Confession of Faith uh, says this about the Scriptures. It says, some things in Scripture are clearer than others. And some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. However... The things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of, a, of the Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. In other words, we can understand who Christ is by reading the Bible, by hearing God's Word proclaimed, Similarly, Martin Luther, in his famous work, The Bondage of the Will, he writes this. He says, but if many things still remain obtruse to many, this does not arise from obscurity in the Scriptures, but from our own blindness or want or lack of understanding, who do not go the way to see the all-perfect clearness of the truth, let therefore wretched men cease to impute with blasphemous perverseness the darkness and obscurity of their own heart to the all-clear scriptures of God. If you speak of the internal clearness, no man sees one iota in the scriptures but he that hath the Spirit of God. If you speak of the external clearness, nothing whatever is left obscure or ambiguous, but all things that are in the Scriptures are by the Word brought forth into the clearest light and proclaimed into the whole world. These quotes are both referring to what theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity of Scripture. That's one of my favorite theological terms because it's a very unclear and obscure word that means clarity. Perspicuity. It's even hard to spell and pronounce. A theologian by the name of Kevin Van Hooser, he teaches at the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School outside of Chicago, he, he says this of this idea. He says, the idea that the Bible is clear does not obviate the need for interpretation, but on the contrary, makes the work of interpretation even more important. The clarity of Scripture means that understanding is possible, not that it's easy. Redeeming the text does not mean reconciling all interpretive conflicts. The clarity of Scripture is neither an absolute value nor an abstract property, but a specific function relative to its particular aim. The Scripture's witness to Christ. The clarity of Scripture, in other words, does not mean that we will know everything that there is to know about the text of Scripture. 
but that we will know enough to be able and responsible to respond to its subject matter, to what it's about. The clarity of Scripture is not a matter of obviousness so much as its efficacy. The Bible is clear enough to render its communicative action effective. (laughs) The Bible speaks, and it speaks clearly as to who Jesus is and what he has done. Salvation is so simple of a concept that even our children can understand. We could put it like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. So, so kids, do you know that's true? Do you know that that's true? Do you know that Jesus loves you? Now we know that we could, we could pull apart that simple song and quibble maybe with some of the theology, but that's not necessary. The simple fact remains, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The scripture is clear enough that our children can understand the law. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E, right? Am I the only one that's ever sung that song? That's all you're going to get. The scripture is clear enough that our children can understand the law, obedience, and also understand the gospel, that Jesus loves them. So if the Bible is clear enough for us to understand salvation, shouldn't our worship of our great God and Savior be understandable as well? Now, occasionally there are some who would say that, well, well, buddy, you're not that understandable. <laughs> um, sermons here at Logansville Church are too deep for people to understand. And I always take that kind of criticism to heart. But I also refuse to water it down or dumb down the sermons in order to please people who probably in reality are just not going to be pleased. And honestly, that's, that's typically where that criticism tends to come from if it's unwarranted. Instead, we, Logansville Church, will hold fast to the truth and we'll say the hard things. But I'm bringing this up here because this is actually part of Paul's argument for the use of spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church in our study of 1 Corinthians. And, and by extension, not just for the Corinthians, but for our church as well. And he, and he specifically takes issue with the, the gift of speaking in tongues. So turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And as you're turning there, consider this. There are churches out there. um, You've probably seen some of these on TV or whatever. Maybe you have some experience. But there are churches out there who regularly have services where the people, including and and even those up front, so worship leaders and preachers or teachers or whoever, who claim to have this gift of speaking in tongues, and they use it in such a way that brings only confusion to those who are there claiming to worship the God whose message of salvation and hope is perfectly clear. So let's look at verses 1 to 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and then we will pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to help us understand. 
1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men, but to God. No one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if uh, with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know uh, what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that, you, that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let me continue through verse 26. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. All right, let's stop and pray again. Lord, it is our prayer that you would help us to understand. We do believe that Scripture is clear, but that does not mean that all Scripture is perfectly understandable on a quick read. And so there are difficult things. Even Peter acknowledges that about Paul's writing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that your Spirit would lead us, that we might praise you. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in many ways, as we get into this chapter, this section of chapter 14, it picks up on the themes that Paul had started to address back in chapter 12. Um, 
But as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, where he writes so strongly about love, it's not a diversion. Really, it ties together as an overarching theme. And not just a theme for this section or even this letter, this book, really a theme for all of the Bible. And in fact, it's a theme for all of Christianity. Love ought to control us. Real, genuine love. Love like we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Love, our, uh, we love our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. And we can only do that because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Love ought to control us. Love controls our spiritual gifts. Our love for God and our love for one another controls our serving one another, our praying for one another, our building each other up in love. Back when we looked at chapter 12, I laid out at that point a few weeks ago, um, maybe more than a few, it was a little while ago, we were still, you remember the old church building, we were still over there then, our western campus. Um, I laid out at that time uh, the biblical reasoning for why we believe that certain gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased, have been completed or come to an end. So I'm not going to rehash all of that now. Instead, I would encourage you, if you missed that, to go ahead and listen to it. Um, It is on our church website. You can listen to that again. But at the time of this writing, when Paul is addressing the Corinthians, as he's writing this letter, what we sometimes call the sign gifts, like speaking in tongues, they were still active. In fact, Paul will say down in verse 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And the reason for this, the reason that these gifts are still active at the time that Paul is writing this, is that new revelation is still being given. This is God's Word. You may remember that these, these, what we sometimes call sign gifts, uh, are called sign gifts because they signify something. And one of the things that they signify is that God is speaking through the person writing in this case. The fact that Paul spoke in tongues is evidence that he had the gift of apostle and that this letter is genuinely the word of God. And so here in chapter 14, Paul gives clear instruction about what have, what have come to be really, the, I think, the most misunderstood of, the, of all of the sign gifts, speaking in tongues. I want to make a distinction here, and I've made this before, and I want to make sure that you pick up on this. Um, The word for tongues that Paul uses indicates a linguistic code. In in other words, Paul is talking about known languages, not just sounds. He's talking about known languages. And if you remember, I pointed this out before, but Acts chapter 2 verse 11 tells us that those at the first time this gift was seen at Pentecost, those who initially witnessed uh, the first speaking in tongues, they said this. They said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, our own native languages. They were saying specific things. They were witnessing to the mighty works of God. So much of modern day speaking in tongues 
could be defined as one author um, put it like this. He called it a, a euphoric experience that causes the speaker to emit a pattern of sounds that have no meaning. Without accurate interpretation, this cannot edify, encourage, or exhort others. Instead, it cloaks the gospel in a veil of incoherence. It creates estrangement for those who are mystified by what is happening and can potentially alienate the speaker from fellow members because they no longer speak a common language. So what Paul is doing in this section of Scripture is actually discouraging the practice of speaking in tongues among Christians even at a time when the gift was still active. This should cause uh, those of us, any who believe that the, that the sign gifts continue today, it should, it should cause us to stop and consider what Paul is saying. It should bring pause to all of us. He's not saying that it was evil or wrong for them at that time to practice this gift. In fact, he says, I, I do it more than anybody. But remember, the point of the miraculous sign gifts was to authenticate new revelation being given. And so he's writing here to curb uninterpreted tongues in the assembly, in the gathered worship. Now, they understood, as do most Christians, even those of the what we sometimes call the charismaniac variety, that tongues were a sign of divine inspiration. They understood that. This is what makes this so dangerous today. If someone is genuinely speaking in tongues, then certainly what they say is from God. And if it is from God, how can we question it? If someone says, the Lord told me, and we believe that that gift is continuing, how can we question that? It, ha it has to have been the Lord. And so then how can we not give them money for a new airplane or whatever, right? But just as today, these, these Corinthians, they wrongly credited those who were speaking in tongues. They, they actually were giving them too much prestige, too much honor, even at the expense of others. And this was especially true at their, at their gathered corporate worship when they came together. Instead, Paul says um, that these, what we might call speech gifts, that are intelligible to all, including outsiders, are the most fruitful and should be the most valued. And outsiders here, as Paul uses this term, are those who are as of yet outside of God's covenant. In other words, he's just simply talking about unbelievers. Those who are not Christians, they don't know the uh, sort of the, the churchy lingo and language. They don't know the, uh, the way that churches typically operate. They haven't yet trusted in Christ. And so unbelievers who are maybe even visiting church and watching the worship service, even with some sort of curiosity, might be confused and turned off by all of this weirdness, Right? Now, I've hinted at this um, over the last few weeks, but before we go any further, we really need to make one more definition. We, we really need to define prophecy because these are the two gifts that Paul is sort of putting, uh, uh, comparing and contrasting with each other here, um, speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. So let's, let's define prophecy as he's saying it here. 
Let me give you a, a really simple definition. Then I'll give you a longer, more complicated one. The really simple definition is this. Prophecy is the declaration of God's will to the people. Prophecy, is, as Paul is using it here, is the declaration of God's will to the people. Now here's a longer one. This is actually from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And it defines prophecy like this. Prophecy is the inspired speech of a charismatic or persuasive preachers through whom God's plan of salvation for the world and the community and his will for the life of individual Christians are made known. The prophet knows something of divine mysteries. I actually really like that last line. The prophet knows something of divine mysteries. The prophet declares divine revelation. We would not disagree with this. We would just define divine revelation as God's word, right? The Apostle Paul calls this, throughout this section, he calls this the most important spiritual gift for the church's assembled worship when you come together. This is why at the very end of his life, Paul wrote to Timothy from a prison, and he said this in 2 Timothy, he says, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his word, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Well, when we think of prophecy, we often think of something like a, a disclosure of future events. Um, but it can also address contemporary situations and in ways that bring comfort and, and encouragement to the listeners. Or, or maybe to bring sinners under conviction and, and call them to repentance. So just think of our study as Ben has been teaching in the book of Jeremiah during Sunday school. Or really, think of any of the Old Testament prophets. There is some foretelling of future events, but the biggest part of the message of, of the Old Testament prophets, including even, let's put John the Baptist in the same category, the biggest part of the message of all of these prophets is to call God's people to repent and be saved from the wrath to come. That's exactly what God had warned when he gave them the law. There will be curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience. That's the biggest part of a prophet's job, calling people to repent and be saved from the wrath to come. But the prophecy that we're talking about here that we see in the New Testament is a gift of grace that leads to a spiritual challenge, leads us to be challenged, it leads us to be comforted, it sometimes announces judgment or uh, brings consolation, but, but the ultimate goal of this New Testament prophecy is the building up of the church. And so I think you can see where I'm going with this. We're talking about preaching. Now, I want to be clear. I, I don't believe that all preaching is prophecy in that sense of being a, a spiritual gift. In other words, I, I, don't believe that all, I don't believe that all preachers have that gift but up until the, sort of that modern Pentecostal movement, which really began in the early 1900s, 
Many writers, Christian theologians, pastors, they would use the terms almost interchangeably, prophecy and preaching. But because of the confusion that developed in the early 1900s in particular um, with the sign gifts, um, especially following the Azusa Street revivals I talked about a few weeks ago, um, most of those, at least in our theological camp, sort of the people around us, we resist making too much of this connection so as to avoid that kind of confusion. And so in evaluating the use of spiritual gifts, Paul offers four requirements here in this passage. Um, four characteristics, we might say, that, that they must have in order to be used properly. Let me give you all four, and then we'll go back and um, work through these briefly. The first is this. They must be used for the edification of the church. They must be used for the edification of the church. Any spiritual gift must be used for the edification of the church. Second, they must be used for the benefit of the church. You can see even there's a connection between all of them, all four of these. They must be used for the edification of the church, and they must be used for the benefit of the church. Third, they must be used to bring understanding to the church. Edification, benefit, understanding. And then finally, and we're only going to touch on this today, we'll get into it um, another time. They must be used for the worship of, in the church. They must be used for the worship in the church. So for edification, for benefit, for understanding, and for worship. So edification. Look at verses 1 to 5 here again. He says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Pursue love, he starts off with. Obviously, this is a connection to chapter 13 we looked at last week. Pursue the kind of love that he's just described there, a love that points to the cross. But that word for pursue is actually a, it's a really common word for the Apostle Paul. He uses it often. And it's, a, it's an imperative, meaning it's a, it's a command or even a plea. He's pleading with them to pursue love. And, and it functions, that word pursue there, it's kind of a metaphor. And it, and it calls us to spiritual effort, doesn't it? Pursue love. We have to work at that. We have to, do, we have to pursue it. Um, think of Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, when Paul says this. He uses the same word. See if you can catch it. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on. That's the same word. And it has that, that sense of athletic achievement. But notice what he's doing. What is, what is to be pursued is clearly, in this first sentence here, clearly superior to what is to be merely desired, even eagerly desired. We're called to pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. 
to pursue here is to seek to conform to the will of God, to seek to conform to the image of Christ who gave himself, who loved us and gave himself up for us. It's to participate in our sanctification. And yet to earnestly desire certain gifts is good and noble, but they're still, they're still gifts, right, given by God who gives as he pleases. We pursue love and we earnestly desire the gifts that are given by God as he pleases. There's another connection here with this, this idea of earnest desire. And I, I think this helps to illustrate, at least in my mind, hopefully it will for you, this idea. Consider 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul instructs Timothy, he says this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Scripture tells us that it is a noble thing for a man to desire the work of an overseer, an elder. But there, there are many reasons why someone might not um, want to do that, right? Or, or even ought not do that, ought not be appointed to the task of shepherding, overseeing. He might, he might not be qualified in his character, or even his family life. He might be a new believer who really wants to preach, really wants to be a pastor, but he's only been a believer for a short period of time. The idea of being held accountable by God for the people under his care might be a little daunting for him. He might not be a gifted pastor or preacher. That list of why someone might not pursue that office is that list could go on. It's the same kind of desire that we see here. It is okay and good to earnestly desire to declare God's will to the people, but you must pursue love. Why does, why does Paul single out one gift here over the other? As we consider these two that he's comparing, speaking in tongues and prophecy, Look again at verses uh, 2, 3, and 4. He says, For one who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. It's kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? Um, I need to point out, however, that Paul is talking about the actual gift of tongues that are being interpreted. He says that in this case, only God, or being left uninterpreted rather, right? So he's talking about tongues that are being left uninterpreted. Nobody has any idea what he's saying. He says that in that case, only God can understand what is being said. But gifts are given for the building up of the entire church, for the gathered assembly, so, so is the purpose, um, as we consider the, the gift of prophecy here, the purpose of this is for the building up of the church, right? We gather every week and proclaim God's word, preach God's word, read God's word, that we may be built up. We I hope we understand that. That we may be built up and conformed to the image of Christ, 
We can even say that edification is at least one of the benchmarks by which to measure what goes on in public worship. Right? Does it edify? Does it build up and encourage the church? Look at verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So if somebody came in here and started to tell of the mighty works of God, genuinely started to tell of the mighty works of God, but they were doing so in Portuguese or in Mandarin, it would not edify the church, would it? Even if they were saying true things, even if they genuinely were telling of the mighty works of God, we wouldn't understand. It would only confuse us, and it's worse, it's worse if it's no language at all. At least if you're speaking in an actual language, there's a chance that somebody would understand. It's worse if it's no language at all. Paul, Paul wants only that done in church that will edify believers and or drive sinners to repentance and faith in Christ and also to not drive unbelievers away. Now, don't get me wrong. Unbelievers are sometimes driven away from the church. But let it be the gospel that drives them away and not our own weirdness. Right? consider kind of as a positive example of this kind of edification. Um, Acts chapter 15, verses 30 to 35 says this. This is right after the Jerusalem council. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is what I want you to hear. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Paul wants the church to be built up. He wants the church to be encouraged with many words. It would have been encouraging if somebody went amen right there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Probably too many words. But the primary way that this is done is through the preaching of the whole counsel of God's word. Spiritual gifts must be used for the edification of the church. And, and secondly, they must also be used for the benefit of the church. For benefit. Pick it up in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you um, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. I don't know if you've caught how many times in this passage Paul says, for the building up of the church, for the building up of the church over and over. But notice right at the beginning of this, 
and he's going to do this actually three times in this chapter. He says, brothers, or um, brethren, or brothers and sisters. He's addressing the church, and he does this to mark a, a shift in what he's been saying. So he means something like this. We, we, if we were writing a letter, we might say, let's look at the facts, or consider this. And then he gives an illustration in verse 6 that he thinks is really obvious. If they can't understand him, then whatever he says will be useless to them. It will not benefit them in any way whatsoever. It will make no difference if it's a revelation, if it's God's revealed word. It'll make no difference if it's, if it's knowledge, if it's a, a spirit-led understanding of Scripture. It'll make no difference if it's prophecy, if it's, if it's the Apostle Paul himself preaching, or if it's a teaching straight from the Bible. This is really simple, and it's a connected illustration. If I was up here doing all of this in Greek, reading from Greek, speaking Greek, you would have no idea what I was saying. Neither would I, by the way. We would have no idea what was going on. It would benefit no one. Then he further makes, he makes his case with, with three more analogies. If a, if a flute or a harp was played for you with no discernible notes, if it was just noise with no melody, would you be able to pick up on what the name of the song was? Or the message behind it? If a bugle is sounded, but it was unable to call soldiers to battle, revelry, right? If a bugle was sounded and the soldiers heard it and had no idea what the guy was trying to tell them to do, what good is that? Verse 9, if your tongue stopped working, how will anyone know what you are trying to say? In verses 10 and 11, Paul continues that same illustration that I've already been giving. Speaking another language, we have to be able to understand. But then look at verse 12. He says this, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. If the church of Corinthians, if the, if the Corinthian Christians are truly eager for spiritual gifts, then their focus should be on the building up of the church, not on merely collecting gifts or taking spiritual gift inventory so that they can tell what their spiritual gift is, so that they will look good in their own eyes. Imagine if this was the focus of our lives. Strive to excel in building up the church. Imagine if that was the focus of all of our lives. Every, all of my effort is placed, imagine, if all of our effort was placed in striving to excel in building up the church for the benefit of the church, what if that was your goal in life? Paul continues now to explain that spiritual gifts must be used not only for the edification and benefit of the church, but also to bring understanding to the church. Look at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. 
Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So if the purpose of spiritual gifts is for the building up of the body of Christ, then any genuine speaking in tongues at the time that Paul is writing this, they should be done in such a way that the church understands. This is what he's talking about in verses 14 and 15 when he's making this distinction between his spirit and his mind. We might say something like this. I may feel like I'm in communion with God, but my mind is dull and unthinking. That's really what he's saying there in verses 14 and 15. So have you ever, have you ever sung a hymn or a song, any song, and afterward realized that you had no idea what the song was about? I did this for years in church. Sang what everybody else was singing. Hymns that I've known my whole life. And suddenly, I don't know, sometime in my 30s, I realized I don't, I don't, I don't know what I'm singing. I don't know what these words mean. When he brings up spirit here in these couple of verses, he's referring to our seat of emotions. We may feel worshipful when we sing certain songs or even hear certain preachers, but in reality, we have no knowledge of what they're saying. It's just an emotion. I I may have shared this story before too, but... At my grandfather's funeral, his name was Merle Ford. One of his oldest friends, who is a Pentecostal preacher named Sherm Stevens, he got up to preach. Um, there were, he was only supposed to say a few words, preach for just a couple of minutes. Um, he went on for over a half an hour. Um, I was sitting in the front row because I was sort of the MC of the funeral. I, I'd already preached my sermon. And uh, there was another guy to get up after him. Um, it went way too long. But anyway, Sherm went on and on and on. And I'm sitting in the front row. Everybody can see my facial expressions, which I sometimes have a hard time hiding my displeasure or whatever. He went on and on and on with that sort of southern Pentecostal cadence. Do you know what I mean? Ever seen that? I, I don't know if you've ever experienced it. In my opinion, it's weird anywhere, but it is doubly weird when you're in Loudoun, New Hampshire. After the funeral, my cousin's husband, his name is Jay, we were standing in a circle, a bunch of family, and Jay came up and said, man, he can preach. I was, I was taken aback because he didn't say anything. He went on and on and on for over a half an hour, and I have no idea what he was talking about. How many times do we go into church, or, or, or even, even some Christian concert, and we sing, and we pray, and we have a truly great emotional experience, and in the end, we have no idea what actually just happened. We don't know what the words mean. 
It's as if our minds are shut off. Paul is saying here that our worship should not simply engage our emotions. It must engage our minds as well. I I so appreciate when Craig gets up to lead us in song, and he will do something something like point out the gospel presentation in the hymns that we sing. You say, notice verse 1 says that we are apart from God. I once was lost in darkest night. Verse 2, Christ sent his son. Verse 3, he gave us faith. Verse 4, when we all get to heaven. Whatever the hymn happens to be about, we should pay attention to the words that we are actually singing to our God because we're singing them to our God. And then here in verse 16 is where Paul actually, I don't know if I dare say this, he actually gets a little seeker sensitive. Look look at verse 16, I'll tell you what I mean. He says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Even an unbeliever ought to be able to come into church and understand the actual words that we proclaim. And remember, this is about speaking in tongues. I'm not talking about difficult English words. We're talking about words that nobody really understands. We could put it like this. Preach the gospel. It's necessary to use words. English, native words that we understand. Our spiritual gifts must be used to bring understanding to the church, to engage our minds, so so that we are a people who think whose foolish and darkened minds have been enlightened by the gospel of Jesus Christ and now have understanding. And then finally, we're going to pick this up. Um, I'm going to be off for a couple of weeks, but we'll pick this up when I come back. This really is the rest of the chapter. It goes all the way through um, to the end of chapter 14. But spiritual gifts must be used for worship in the church. Let me read again, just verses 20 to 25. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. Part of the building up of the church, as Paul keeps saying throughout this section, Part of the building up of the church is the growth of the church. Our spiritual gifts are to be used in worship in such a way that calls sinners to repentance, that they might be added to our number, just as as we once were. And they were added that day, as as we see in Acts chapter 2, for example. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were added that day. Why? Because they heard God's word proclaimed as Peter preached. 
that God might be glorified. All of this is that God might be glorified, that the church might be built up. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, some of these things are hard to understand, hard to put together. Um, And yet what is easy to understand is that the purpose of this is that the church might be built up. And so it is my prayer today, Lord, that we would be as the Bereans were, that we would search the scriptures to see if these things are so, that we would search your word to see if the things that I say, the things that we sing about, the prayers that we pray as a church, that we would be a people of your word, that we might be built up, that we might be building one another up in love. Lord, we earnestly desire, even as we think about this concept of preaching, sometimes it's the preaching formally like what I've done and do every week, and sometimes it is just the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Sometimes it is just the proclamation of telling one another, telling unbelievers about Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift to be able to clearly articulate the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would use our minds, study your word, that we would be a people who are building one another up, encouraging one another, spurring one another on, preaching the good news to the lost, bringing uh, the gospel to our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, that we would be a people who are all about building up the church because we are about a people who want to glorify our God. And so, Lord, as we do that by coming to the table this morning, as we come to proclaim Christ's death. Lord, we come here as a people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. That the table would not become um, just formulaic and wrote for us any more than the songs or the prayers or the offerings or the sermons or the gathering together in the fellowship. Sometimes, Lord, those things can become tedious, we think. But that's our sin. That's our selfishness. And so, Lord, we come to the table to proclaim Christ's victory. We come to the table to proclaim Christ's death on the cross, his victory over our sin until he returns. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.